Okay, hey, everybody, to... welcome, welcome, welcome to VCs at UCD or venture capitalists at UC Davis. Uh, my name is Aaron Anderson. I'm the director here at the Startup Center. Um, as you come in, please turn on your cameras if the internet will allow. We like to have a conversation here, um, but uh, yeah, we'll keep it simple as that. It is my pleasure today to introduce a friend and mentor of mine. Um, Helen Corey is a founding partner at Eight Dimension Ventures, a, a new venture fund. Um, well, I was going to introduce what the fund does, but Helen, rather than me tell the story, why don't we start with you just uh, giving us the overview? What is Eight Dimension Ventures? What do you invest in? What are you What are you excited about? Um, hi, good afternoon, or yeah, afternoon for you. It's a uh, East Coast time for me. Um, so I am uh, one of the founding and general partners for Eight Dimension Ventures, and Eight Dimension Ventures was uh, formed on the back end of Eight the eight dimension, uh, eight dimensions of wellness, um, and within that eight dimensions, it basically is around the methodology of how sort of emotional, financial, social, physical, occupational, intelligent environments all impact an individual. And our philosophy and our theory is about all of the things that people need to make them be a whole individual and to lead a healthy life is to be equal or have a good balance between all of the eight dimensions. And we were very lucky within this particular sort of set of, of parameters, which is well found on the web, um, that no one had actually looked to harness that. Uh, and so we brought that into our methodology and created our fund built around um, those eight. The, um, the impact of those has been quite uh, insightful, learning even more, delving into that as part of our fund and our investment methodology, our analysis of how we look at companies, our thesis, and the view uh, has been a very wide adopting um, understanding from a lot of people because everybody can see their lives in the eight dimensions. Some are stronger, some are weaker. And uh, the companies that are really coming to the forefront over the last probably 18 months that everybody's been in COVID have been accelerated because health and wellness has become such a core fundamental in people's lives that the, um, the parameters now have been quite, uh, let's say insightful for each individual, but also for the investor community, which has typically spent their time in mostly the financial um, areas of looking at businesses and now really starting to look at the esoteric aspects of, of companies as well. Yeah. So Helen, health and wellness companies, I suppose there might be some similarities, but it seems to me that they're radically different from, we'll call them like the classic software plays that the old school venture investors were investing in. Um, first off, I guess, is that, is that difference real? And if so, how does that lead your venture firm to behave differently than what, uh, say, a traditional venture investor might do? Yeah. So, I mean, I've spent time with either my own companies and raising capital um, in the Valley or in Silicon Alley in New York, which are typically the two areas of, of the U.S. Um, that invest and obviously in Europe as well, having um, sat in London for the last 20 years. Within um, the typical model, let's say, for investment and, and those types of companies, typically it's a product. Um, the product then gets sort of right-sized, it gets modified, it gets sold um, into a sort of minimum viable product or MVP, which is the terminology maybe you all have heard. 
Um, and then you get people interested and show that there's interest and people are willing then to part with their cash to buy your stuff. The, it was fairly clinical and within that model has been um, quite prescriptive on uh, the industry, not only in sort of product and services, but within the health and wellness, they're more um, esoteric. It, it sometimes takes longer for something to be effective. So if it's a, a vitamin or a solution or an insulin or a, you know, some sort of product that you're digesting, the more um, you move into the emotional side, so health and well-being, um, you know, sort of mental health, um, it takes a while. And therefore, some of the product or the uh, adoption was quite hard for people to follow. COVID um, has accelerated this marketplace um, from the last probably even five years in that the distribution of services or products has become much more mainstream and much more immediate for people. The interaction, if you think that you had a product that maybe needed to be administered through a doctor and you had to schedule a doctor visit and the doctor, then you went to the doctor's office. That has been sort of radically changed with sort of home healthcare where you can dial in and the doctor, you know, sort of talks to you through video um, and deliver services. Uh, that has then accelerated them being able to offer different things because the tangibility of those services has been more um, quickly and administered through different means, sensory, visual, as well as physical product. And tying all those together has been um, accelerated probably more, it probably would have taken another five to 10 years past that. Uh, without sort of this smaller acceleration period. And with that, the venture capital community, the investment community, kind of where I sit, not being a product delivered person now or service delivered and, and building companies that way, but now as a venture capital and spending time in that space, is that the, the aspects or, or the longer term implications are uh, turned around in a shorter amount of time. And therefore looking at the uh, inputs uh, of what people can actually consume or do has changed. And therefore the viability of product or demographics has changed. You've got more uh, of the elderly population coming in because they have more accessibility now through um, online media, which they hadn't had. You have much more things being delivered to the younger generations um, of, of kids. They're much more tactile, but now the kids have become much more visual before, you know, the tactile was on video games and now it's much more on distribution of education um, and, you know, the mental wellness of, of people as you guys probably were going to school during um, the COVID period. And that was a significant change between the interaction. So the types of of products and the um, development of the companies to service this particular sector has gone through a change. You're not just getting the, you know, we'll go to the simple ones of, I've got a new kind of protein powder that you should be drinking, right? It's a much more holistic view and people are starting to now um, identify the pull through um, of health and wellness products and the alignment of those to the individual. And you have a consumer base now that is much more um, in tune to wanting to search for those products. So where it had been a, a shorter time to, uh, uh, sorry, a longer time to actually get product to market, it's much quicker because both sides of the equation are searching. So for us in that particular market, we have come into a sector where there is a, an area of investment where pre-series A, 
Um, and if I'm using any terms, just raise your hand, I'm more than happy to do it. So in the pre-series A, which is typically your first investment round, um, the, the, there's an opportunity uh, space between concept where people go to friends and their family for money, you know, please fund me, to where they go for their, where their series A. There's a gap in the market right now because it's pre where um, products have been at their minimum viable product, but they have such a, a growth um, adoption either through social media um, or a catalyst in that fashion. Uh, and that is where Eight Dimension Ventures is now slotting themselves is to give those companies that catapult that takes them from sort of their friends and family and sort of people all drinking the Kool-Aid at the, at, at the beginning of a company to helping prep them for now um, that, that Series A. Uh, and and it's, it's quite a niche um, uh, to watch sort of all these forces at work right now. Oh, I don't doubt it. Well, so Helen, one of the things we like to talk about often here at UC Davis is, is using entrepreneurship to solve major global challenges, you know, not just building the next dating app or social network, but solving big problems. Um, it's clear to me that this is important to you, but I, I'd love maybe for you to like pepper some detail about how you think about solving this big problems, how you balance a good investment from a company that is doing good and whether those are synonymous or different and, and how you wrestle with that tension. Sure, I can give you a, a, a view of a particular investment we're, we're going to be making. Our, our fund is just kind of going through um, the point of, of, of taking an investment, but we already have a, a, a portfolio of companies that we want to invest in. Um, there's a company now with a very, very seasoned um, group of people um, and then they have been in the Valley for quite some time. And they have developed um, some technology that will allow you to um, take, your, take your phone and swipe it over a plate of food. Um, and with that, it will be able to tell you the total composite uh, of the food itself. So if you have, I don't know, a thing of French fries and a thing of salad and I don't know, a, a piece of protein on it, it, you know, normally you'd go into your app if you were calorie conscious and you'd figure out what ounce of chicken and sort of what was in your salad. I got two tomatoes and whatever, and you know, I've got four French fries and it kind of looks like this and you're sort of adding around what you have versus you will be able to swipe and it will be able to tell you it's 500, 600, 700 calories on your plate. And with that, it has, um, you know, X of carbohydrates. And while the technology is there and has grown because of you know, the handheld devices and what they do is the biggest complexity that they are solving is all of the nutrition databases that exist in the world are so diversified and so, so fragmented that in order for someone to actually piece it together and understanding what all of those pieces needs a pure dietitian that you're now putting the ability for someone to swipe, but their biggest leverage is they're able now to knit all of that information that would take, you know, tons of hours for someone to do a, an analysis of specific specificity on a diet to be able to say, this is where you are, but within five seconds, give that control to someone in the data. Now you would sit there and go, well, you know, I, I you clearly can probably see by my bill that I, I, I don't carry a lot of weight. So I'm not one of those people and I'm not a regimented person that counts my calories. You, so you have extremism, right? You have to look at extremism. You have extremism on one end of the spectrum that says I'm a high performing athlete 
and I need to know what goes in my body and I prescribe to keep me at my best performance. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have someone who has an eating disorder or diabetes or um, some aspect Crohn's disease where it is necessary and prescriptive to keep that person in some tolerance level so that they're healthy. And the impact of being able to create the simplicity out of the complexity has such huge ramifications for people. You think about, you will be able to understand what you're actually taking in, in your stuff at the exact precise. So then you can start to prescribe, do I need more zinc or do I, you know, there's sort of vitamins you take now. I, you know, I take, I don't know, make it up Centrum or I'm not sure of the vitamins here in the US right now, but you get my point where you're buying stuff because you think you need to make up a gap. And now you'll be able to specifically see. And over time, where you get to is instead of going to your doctor, you're saying, hey, here's my panel of blood work, right? You can now say, here's my nutrition panel. Here is what I'm doing here. And, and the, the view of that over time has such far reaching of actually creating a much different level of um, dealing with child obesity or dealing with the right type of insulin or stopping people from overdoing. So the health implications. So they went to the Valley to go get funding by the big venture capitalists. And they've been in the Valley all day long. And they wouldn't get funded because they didn't have a first sale. Now, this is a very seasoned team, right? This is so part of where we know the founder quite well. So we said, fine, we will fund you. But the implications is going back to why is it so different and things that we look for is this at a mathematical calculation, which is very complex, a simple thing of an iPhone and there's diet apps out there. But this isn't about diet. This is about fundamental shift of literally a large shift in the market and a large shift for human health because of the simplicity of tying together all of that nutrition and laying out for people so that they get it. It isn't just about, you know, how am I gonna drop two pounds, but this is actually a lifetime health piece. So those are the types of things that we look for. It is that upper lift and what that can actually enable medical and individuals themselves to do for their life. Does that give you a sense? Well, so I, Absolutely. I love the, the color that, that, that is provided when you learn about individual startups. You know, it, it, I think it brings to life what these eight dimensions of wellness can provide, like the opportunity. Um, so, Helen, for fear of asking something that maybe uh, is confidential, I'd love to hear about a couple of other startups that you're excited about as well. Are, are there any other companies you can talk about? Yeah, there's, um, there's another uh, a company called... Um... Uh, earthly. And, and they, you know, uh, there's some, I sit on, uh, I sit on a, a board of, of, a, of a bank within the UK and, you know, and, and it's sort of peppered around the, the internet now that the biggest thing that people want to do is, you know, if I buy a, I don't know, a burrito on the corner or I, you know, buy something in Walmart or Target or at the supermarket or something, they're going to plant a tree with my points. So everybody kind of wants to plant trees. So that's a really big thing. Um, and, and, and certainly an important thing. But what Earthly has done um, has been quite impressive is that they have taken it more to the broader CO2 issue. And what they do is they've actually partnered in projects. So they actually are taking on whole reforestations. So they are actually creating the foundation of deployment of those forests and the, and the preservation and actually population and running them as you would have forestry type projects 
So they're eliciting capital to conquer a CO2 issue, but are actually not doing it as I'll plant a tree at a time, but they're actually taking into large, you know, almost like infiltrated and feed on the, on the ground, calculating and dealing with CO2, but broadening the protection of forests, not only just planting new. So it's a different um, dimensional and diversity and tackling what we would consider in the eight dimensions, the environmental. But what this actually does is they're building into that forestry a more spiritual component because it gives better, they're building it around where people can walk and you know be outdoors and, and creating extensions of their business that actually feed into that other dimension, which gives people a more of a mental break outside of, can I just save on my CO2? So we do look for people that are trying to drive and drift um, that. There's, um, there's another one uh, that we've dealt with called SunSwap. Um, and they, they've created a uh, uh, refrigeration uh, unit that can be driven by um, a truck, a lorry, you know, like an 18 wheeler, but it's driven by solar power. And they built it for um, refrigeration for um, countries that obviously like India and you know UK, even though it was developed and, and housed in the UK, um, it, it was built for um, sort of the countries where refrigeration is a big unit. They started developing this before COVID and then refrigeration became quite a big issue, but it saves a lot on the CO2 footprint because they're not running diesel generators. They're taking out of the solar that sits within the um, actual refrigeration itself so that the, the energy is then driven to create the refrigeration where they can take distribution of vaccination and refrigerated goods and things to that effect. So one, it helps on the footprint, two, it's environmentally friendly, three, it sort of distributes more on the social basis um, to get through that. It gets through the occupational stuff about distribution of vaccines. So, you know, the, we look for multiple um, areas. So that's just, you know, two others. So is it common for these startups you're looking at to, you know, intersect maybe multiple dimensions of the eight, you know, you've got this long list of dimensions is, are you, are you targeting one at any given time or, or maximizing the, the number of check marks a company can make? Um, I think what we tried to do is we tried to look for as many of the dimensions. They typically have a primary, um, but we tend to at least look to see if they have two or three in their makeup within the portfolio um, uh, that, we, we um, have designed and will build um, through our funds that it will be the composite um, within the portfolio. So some of the things that we do, or, or I should say are doing um, is within our fund, we're creating a founders forum, um, which will be a private um, area for the founders of companies that we do invest in that will come in and, and we'll start to build that composite so that the companies actually can um, uh, coalesce around the eight dimensions so that it extends their thinking um, in areas where they potentially hadn't thought about before, as well as you know the traditional, hey, how can we partner and put pieces together? But this is more about the extension of the thought process of the founder and we have found um, in the founders and, you know, you would think, well, they must maybe must be all young or younger, but I'm the first company I talked about, you know, the person is definitely in their sixties, but thinking in a more global basis. And the reason why they got into it is because his daughter was suffering with Crohn's disease and he suffered 
because he couldn't deal with the diet. So he made all of her food for three years and realized that the diet stuff didn't, you know, the, the nutrition um, information he was getting was not um, accurate. So he went to solve the problem. So as you, I'm sure you're aware, anybody who starts a company is usually starting a personal problem or an, an esoteric or a macro problem. So within the, the companies itself, we tend to look for one primary one or, and then usually have a secondary one. But then within the, the portfolio itself, we're now trying to not you know, do the typical, oh, well, this company and this company must go together, right, for optimization. We're looking at how the founders actually interact and how can they collectively build more of the eight dimensions into their business so the companies become more well-rounded. Right. That makes sense. Well, so each one of these dimensions in my mind is, you know, a massive economic opportunity. You know, you can build a, you know, almost endless list of great startups in each one of them. Um, but I'm curious, in addition to each individual dimension, are there any major trends you see technologically speaking or socially speaking that, that you think are particularly exciting? Maybe that, that help grow these these different dimensions themselves you know it i think um i mean technology itself is just expanding in leaps and bounds yeah i mean you know i, I always use the example for things that were developed that never really were meant to be so i always go back to a fitbit right you know so you know pick your garmin or whatever your thing is but my my when the fitbits first came out and you know it's sort of helped you track your 10,000 or whatever your goal steps were. And within that, um, my, my parents, you know, just thought that they needed to be more active. It wasn't a prescribed thing for them. And they just decided they wanted to get one. So, I mean, this is several years ago now. And um, it was great because, you know, they'd look and say, oh, I got over so many steps or I didn't. So they'd walk a little bit further. But for me, because I lived in a separate country, right? For Fitbit, I knew because I was in London and they were on the East Coast, I knew at noon my time I could look on my Fitbit app because we were connected on the, you know, the scale of competition. Um, and I would be able to look at the Fitbit and I could look at theirs. And if I could see the steps moved, I knew that they were awake and I knew that they were alive that day. You know, it was just a, a sense of like, OK, my parents are up and they're moving and they're alive and I don't have to call them and I don't have to text them. Right. So not something that was intended, but for me outside of a, hey, it tells me I've got my 10,000 steps, but it also gives me a sense of, you know, emotional benefit because I can see that my parents are, are moving around and getting the exercise that they needed. So I, I think roll forward, right, into how technology has moved um, and how artificial intelligence has done. I think the administration of AR and VR, which we spend a lot of time in augmented and virtual reality of delivering of services or testing products or scenario planning. Um, but you think about people who are um, vertically challenged due to either an accident or vertigo um, or some sort of um, you know uh, balance issue that you're able to now demonstrate environments which can be done in a safe place for them. They don't have to take them out on a concrete pad to say, hey, can you walk on a sidewalk? You can mimic that and they can fall down on the mat or you know say that. So it gives them, it builds confidence um, in what they do. Um, so back to you, back to sort of the formulation of, of your question is, where are these advances and where is this kind of go? 
there's so much to be thrown at. It is the ability and the adoption of the human population to actually harness it. There are so many things out there, but the ability for an, in, an individual to apply them to their lives all at once is quite um, um, difficult. Um, most people are, don't move my cheese. You know, I've done it this way for 30 years. My, my other story is my, 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 my husband's um, mother, um, when she used to cook a roast, she used to cut the roast in half. And I'm like, well, you know, your oven's this big and you go like this, why do you have to cook? And why do you cut the, <clears throat> the roast in half? And the reason is because she learned it from her grandmother. And the reason why that is because her grandmother's oven was always smaller than the roast. So the only way to get the oven, the roast in the oven was to cut the roast in half, right? So it's those types of things, while these are very, you know, very simple and, and personal examples, but it gives you a sense of where you're trying to move some people. So technology in terms of delivery, AI in terms of, you know, being able to calculate. I mean, you're able to calculate tons and tons of data now. Um, that you weren't able to do before. You've got things being able to think or extend your thinking. You've got tools and adoption of um, video, um, AR, VR, video games, um, you know, which then can be played into different things. Medications, you think about how fast vaccines were created for COVID, I mean, just unheard of, but the ability for them to learn about um, our DNA and then being able to utilize that as a basis for the delivery of the vaccine and take the vaccine from zero to, you know, let's say we got to 80% because we're still in sort of the Petri dish experimentation of a while, but even distributing a worldwide population, you know, it's, it takes the government plus, let's say, companies like Amazon and, you know, um, some of the oil companies that have some of the large logistics. So you've got partner between private and personal sector. All of these are accelerating the health and wellness sector in different ways that we hadn't anticipated. So I think the culmination of still applying technology where we can, I think being able to give the smart people, right, a vehicle, whether that's through um, access to information or it's access to people, you think I can move from meeting to meeting much quicker than I can from walking or driving or taking that 45 minutes. So there's actually sharing of knowledge, which is much faster now, and the storage of that knowledge and referenceable. I mean, I'm not sure about the age of the people that, that are on the screen, but you know, I remember when I was doing a paper, you'd have to go into the library and look in the Dewey Decimal System and pull out the card and go find the book. And you realize the book's not there, and then you got to go on the waiting list, right? Now it's, you know, information is completely available and you think through even the vaccine, the sharing and distribution of sharing between universities and governments. So all of that is accelerating. And the people that are sitting there today um, and, and wants to come, come forward are reaping the benefits of the ability for accessibility, the computer power that exists, the um, ability to have the, um, question being asked going not it can't be done but now is it possible and that's the hardest one for people to get over and i think that the the human condition now is people have been either confined by themselves because of covid and they don't have family nearby or you have ones that have had family and have a much better appreciation for them and the co-workers um, for those that do so that human condition has shifted in this last 18 months to be more reticent to 
realize that the two hours that you probably spend on 280 or Route 101 um, driving in California is better spent with your children and how do you get a more better distribution of quality of life? And that then facilitates better discussions at home and you get to see what your kid eats at three o'clock in the afternoon versus they grab the, I don't know, worse than a fruit roll from the refrigerator or you know they bought a candy bar. All of those dynamics now have fed into, um, I think, smarter consumers but not smarter consumers of, oh, I'm buying, you know, um, a better distribution of vitamin, but I think the more quality distribution of questions they're asking about their life and how they spend it, which is driving then requirements out of the market that hadn't been there before. Right, well, interesting. Well, so, so Helen, I know that your firm has this strong geographic connection to the United Kingdom as well. I'm curious, you know, in light of, of this discussion about technology and what it allows you to do, how do you think about geography in terms of your investments in the companies you work with? Is How does that play a role? Um, right, so our main focus um, has been in the UK and, and there are certainly some, some key changes. While we would love to think that everything does percolate out of the valley and um, you know certainly has for quite some time. The thing that the UK has had um, is that it is a centralized medical system through the national health. So some of the things that can be done or companies that are built within the UK while they lack some of that fervor associated with that entrepreneurial spirit because they've, you know, they've got kind of the Brit inside them um, is that they do have a, a platform and a, and, and a, and a country um, infrastructure that allows the ability to test um, new health and wellness um, ingenuity quicker because it is a centralized place. And th there's, a, there's a natural flow where here you have different states and federal and state and local laws. And, and therefore it, it's a little um, uh, constipated in the US to be able to kind of get some of those things to roll forward. So the UK became quite a, a good incubator and distributor because you could see from beginning to end a little quicker because of, of that platform. And the European market specifically because each of the countries, more or less Germany and France are, are built within that same context. That um, with then the, the next sort of market that really became quite interesting is, is in Israel. Um, and Palestine and Israel set up a whole incubation center where they're testing, I mean, it's like 400 million dollars that got put into this. And, and they're also incubating some really good things. And, and the interesting part about the Middle East and um, kind of that area is they suffer from one of the biggest things is glaucoma um, and cataracts in the eyes because of the sun. And they suffer diabetes just because um, they just eat some crappy food and they don't, it's so hot, they don't exercise. And, you know, there's other sorts of things. So there's a high prominence to solve um, some of those. So there was a lot of ingenuity, but also because of the demographics themselves, most of it, you would think, um, uh, I'll give you a, just a, an example for a geography piece. You would think that if that was a problem with weight, they would be quite easy with Weight Watchers, but it's a very personal thing for them. They don't do before and after, you know, like your Jenny Craig or your Weight Watchers pictures. It's a very personal thing, but most of the stuff is driven by the home. It's the woman that makes the 
decisions in the home where, you know, externally it's, it's the male dominated um, decision-making. So the delivery and, and changes. So geographically for us, where you might see that there's a problem because of the political or because of the family unit, they're dealt with much differently. Um, and then in the medical system, the US um, becomes quite interesting for us um, because of the types of things and the ingenuity and the brain power and everything else that we'd like to, to see and know out of the US. The issue is that it is complicated. There are multiple hospitals. There are multiple um, areas where they're distributed. It's much more commercialized in the US, right? Um, you know, I, the one thing I really had to get used to coming back here was when there was commercials and they talk about drugs, you know, take this pill and it's like 45 seconds out of the minute commercial is all about all the reasons why you shouldn't take it. <laughs> so, so the ingenuity, so, so we, so we had, um, and, and still um, focus as a primary for our first fund is to lap up um, those areas of the UK, which have one been starved for an area of funding at the area of, of the growth of the company, but also because they have such a, a rich um, uh, capability um, to exploit and be, because they've been able to sort of work within that centralized system. But the same ethos then cannot be translated into each geography. So where we have a, a, a very keen um, area where we have built our advisory board, where my, my partner, my, my founding partner and I, we have global experience is that it, it's not a prescriptive, I can just lift and shift, right? It is really understanding at that local level what it takes to get through and can something that needs to be done um, be translated into another country and how do you do that? And, and, and that really can't be done unless you really understand those locals. So we do focus and UK has been ours, but we very much um, expect to go into two of the companies. Well, the first company I talked to is in the UK, but because they have such a global reach that will go quite quickly, we're talking with some areas in the UK for them, um, it, it is the translation, uh, but it does require a very global lens to be able to do that. Right, interesting. Well, so maybe kind of one last uh, bucket of questions here. I, beyond the thesis itself, I'm really curious what you look for in a great investment. So, you know, the themes I commonly hear are, you know, I, I gotta believe in the founding team and I gotta believe in the market they're going after. Um, so convoluted question here, but if those are two of your critical criteria, how do you think about them? And, and are there other criteria that you think are also particularly important that maybe others don't spend as much time, other investors don't spend as much time thinking about? Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand the drivers behind. So I'll, you know, the, another esoteric sort of point, but um, understanding why when I when I sort of answer the broader question. So the person that invented um, the pumpable toothpaste, you know, solved I think a large portion of relationships because you didn't have to argue whether you squeeze it in the middle or you don't put the cap on or you squeeze it from the end, right? It, it just eliminated that argument in the bathroom. So you gotta think about where the driver came from that. They wanted to solve a problem, right? They wanted to either have peace and quiet in their home with their spouse or partner or significant other, right? 
and they just wanted the quick and fast and efficient way of brushing their teeth. Yeah. But there's nothing ingenuity. Toothpaste is toothpaste, right? They color it green, red, yellow. But the person who solved it wasn't solving for toothpaste, okay? They're solving for some other pieces. So when we look at a company, we look at, okay, is there a market? Yes, I mean, that's easy. You know, does anybody care to buy it? You know, there's, there's dime a dozen, you can check it. And as long as the financials are, are sound. But when we, we get into um, past the, what I would say, the mechanics of market and P&L, um, but when we look at the founder, there are a couple of things that we look at. We always look for someone who's had a really big failure. It can be personal. You know, I failed the business, you know, biggest exam. I flunked out of a class. I mean, whatever it is. But we, we look for someone who has really failed. And why is that important? Because if you failed at something, you understand what it feels like. It doesn't feel very good. You've had to figure out how you picked yourself up. Um, you know, did you whinge about it? Did you, you know, does it still stick with you today? You know, because you make decisions different um, when, you, when you've had a failure in your life. So, so we always look for someone who has really had a, a good failure. The other thing that we look for is, I think someone who has empathy. Um, empathy for themselves. You know, no one's perfect every day. No one makes decisions, you know, the best every day. Um, and, and I think an empathy for them and empathy for the people who are buying their product or service um, and can kind of really sit back and say, can I really see myself doing this or being that or serving that? Um, I think we also look for someone who has good communication, who can simplify. Can I actually take a complex, whatever it is they're selling or idea and just simplify it. Can they dumb it down? And can they extrapolate? Can you show me how that would be relevant in another thing? Um, and I think one of the other larger criteria that we look for is just, I call it grit. Um, there's a great TED talk, if you haven't watched it, for a woman who, who teaches out of, of the New York City school system. You know, she always talks about measuring grit. And that's sort of tied to tenacity. You know, there's going to be days that are good and bad and up and down. And, you know, do you have what it really takes to kind of just grind through it? Because some days are just going to be a grind. Um, and I think the last thing that, that we really look for is, is someone to kind of just raise their hand. Like, I don't know it all. I need help. How am I going to do this? How do they rationalize it? You know, and that goes into how do you manage risk and stuff. But I mean, those are things that we really look at because if those pieces exist, then they're probably going to do better than the next person. Um, you know, people always say management team, if the business plans are side by side and they're equal, the management team that really can pull together, that understands what it means to dig themselves out of a hole or deal with crisis or something like that will be much more tuned and much more successful because they are using those skill sets. Um, so those are things that we look for. And some of, those are, some of those are not um, esoteric. You know, one of the questions we always ask, you know, some of the questions we ask our founders are, you know, what's your go-to candy at the movie theater? Doesn't mean anything, you know? I'm a, I mean, it doesn't make sense here. Like, you know, the biggest question we ask in the UK is salt or sweet on, on your popcorn because they put sugar on their popcorn at the movie theaters. It drives me absolutely not. Exactly, I turn my finger. I'm like, but you ask that question in the US and they would be like, what do you mean? You think Cracker Jack or something. But um, 
it, it, you know, it's just something, you know, to make it a little bit different. And how do you take questions that are just off the wall? So anyway. Just watch the reaction. Interesting. I, I like that a lot. And <laughs> I would be really curious, you know, how in the world did you get involved with venture capital in the first place? Yeah, uh, I don't have a regular career path. Um, so, you know, let that be helpful for all of you that you, you don't have to have a normal trajectory in order to get where you want. You know, life isn't a straight line. Um, so I started off in HR many, many moons ago and got into technology and did, you know, big ERP implementations with PeopleSoft and Oracle and SAP. Um, I then... Uh, <laughs> I got into financial services. I mean, I had never run financial services to save my life, but I had run a couple of companies that I started in solving M&A transactions because I was involved in M&A transactions in my job and they, they were really tedious by the time they came and were done. They were decided on a golf course or a tennis court or a dinner table. And, you know, they created information that had to be translated into business benefits and they never matched reality. So um, I wanted to figure out how you got better information to do that. Um, and then um, I went and ran large areas of banks in operational. And then when the dot-com crash hit, uh, you know, all the banks fell apart and I didn't want to work for a bank anymore. Um, but then I was very good at governance, um, you know, managing process and keeping things aligned. And I was very good at managing complex situations. So um, I ended up going to deal with two of the largest transactions in the UK banking system, um, which was the sale of Northern Rock back to the private sector. Um, so I was one of 12 people that did that deal. And then the other one was the failing uh, saving or dealing with the capital um, gap of 1.5 billion in the co-op bank. Um, and I did those as an interim, as a, um, an adjunct to the management team. And uh, then I got into energy. I mean, because my one of my family members was trying to get a company started, he couldn't get it off the ground. So I spent five years dealing with energy. I didn't know anything about it. And the best thing I can offer to anybody who, who's um, still listening is, don't be ever shy to ask a question because I didn't know bugger all about energy. And I asked every question underneath the sun, um, but I hired the best people I could. I hired the best board um, because the one thing when you looked at my background was you didn't know energy. So I hired everybody around me who was the best and the brightest um, to, to do that. So every single time they poked at the company, they couldn't use that as a tool um, to erode the value of the business. Um, and then from there, uh, uh, that company then moved into a sustainability. So I spent time in sustainability and that's run. Uh, and through a relationship on the back of that, backed into um, my business partner now. And we were just talking about the world and you know how it was being just cluttered and killed off by pollutants and plastics and everything else. And just decided that we had a really big synergy about how we wanted to tackle um, other areas of health and wellness. And through the past probably 16 months of pandemic, we've been putting together this fund. So I, it's not something I normally kind of went to. It wasn't in my normal career path. Um, it just it just happened and it was at the right time. And I think other one other part of advice I would offer is, um, you know, really look at opportunities when they come across your, your door and you might be really scared to make that leap, but you'd be surprised at, at um, of how exciting some of those terrifying moments can be. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Helen. It makes all the sense in the world. 
Awesome. Well, we are at time. We better let you go. But Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your insights, your thoughts, and the work you're doing at Eight Dimension Ventures. Um, keep making the world a uh, healthier place. So thank you very thank much. You.